There's only so much you can learn from the Bible. Believe it or not, that's, an un, that's not an uncommon assumption amongst Christians who hold to the Bible, who say that they believe in the Bible. There's only so much you can learn from the Bible. The thought is, you know, once you learn so much from the Bible, the truths of the gospel, right, once you comprehend it, once you learn it, then you're through with it. No need to read it anymore, no need to reflect on it, no need to really study it, because, hey, you know, we've, we've already mastered it. And you know what's even more uncommon than people who might say, there's only so much you can learn from the Bible. What's even more common than that is people who act like it. People who act like it. You know what God's word has to say about such thinking in heart and in attitude? And I hope here at some point in time we're able to identify with uh, this misguided slogan. I hope that we all to some degree can identify with it. God says that this type of thinking and this type of living is actually very unchristian. So if you've ever thought that there's only so much you can learn from the Bible, that's actually very unchristian. I say this because God says that knowing Him, knowing the Gospel, knowing His Word, it includes growing in your knowing. Growing in your knowing, right? If you say that I know God biblically, that I know his gospel, I know his word, to say that I know what it means to know God includes growing in your knowing. And you see this in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. Go ahead and turn there right now. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. This letter was written by the Apostle Paul, a great missionary for Christ. But before Christ revealed himself to Paul, Paul was actually a murderer of Christians. And it was this drastic coming to faith which led to a very drastic change of living. I mean, before he would haul Christians off to jail, right, as a murderer of Christians. But here as he writes Ephesians and then certain other letters of uh, the New Testament, he's actually the one in prison because of his very faith. He's a prisoner of the Lord, as chapter 3 he himself says and writes there. He's probably writing around the 60s AD, the early 60s, and he's wanting Christians to be absolutely secure in the grace of God. Absolutely secure in the grace of God that comes through Jesus Christ. I'll go ahead and read that, verses 15 to 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks to you for you, remembering you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might? That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him. At his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Big idea today, if you're taking notes and you want to write this down, the big idea is it's not enough to know God's sovereign grace. Sounds kind of strange. 
It's not enough to know God's sovereign grace, but we must continue growing in our knowledge of it. It's not enough to know God's sovereign grace, but we must continue growing in our knowledge of it. To know means growing in our knowing, in other words. Uh, Look there, growing in knowing is exactly what Paul prays for uh, for these Christians in verses 15 and 16. This whole text actually is, is just one big prayer. 15 and 16, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith. So he hears that they have actually put their faith in Jesus. They believe in the Lord Jesus and their love toward all the saints. So they are part of his body now. He says there, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you. And we're going to look at what exactly he asked for them to give. God to give them, but for now we look at this posture of prayer. Our entire section, again, is a prayer, and it's telling that Paul assumes this posture of prayer, given what he just finished talking about in verses 3 to 14. Now, in those verses, if you just kind of skim there, I can kind of I can summarize it for you. He speaks about everything God has done for us. And it presumes the fact that we are sinners, that we have wandered away from God, that we are born into sin. And he goes on and says there in 2 verses 1 to 3, you see there exactly what people are apart from Christ. Verse 1 of chapter 2, dead in our trespasses and and sins, in what you once walked. That's very much what the world was, but in chapter 1, the earlier verses there, Paul directs our minds to the sovereign God and says that it's God alone who parted the dark clouds, so to speak, and dumped in every spiritual blessing of grace. Grace upon grace. And so in response, you know, having received this sovereign grace, Paul's posture there that he has himself and that he wants the Christians to have is one of praise. And then so now as he moves towards this next section, 15 to 23, the praise leads to prayer. This posture of prayer here. And he basically prays through everything he just told them. Isn't that awesome? I mean, he's literally just kind of praying through Scripture as he himself, inspired by God, inspired by the Spirit, he writes these things down. And then he just goes on and he prays it for them, those very things that he just wrote. And he looks at the Father, what the Father has done. The Father has adopted them into his family. He looks at the great work of Jesus Christ, having forgiven them of their sins and having redeemed them from sin. And then he goes on and looks at the Spirit and how the Spirit guarantees for them this great and marvelous inheritance that the Father himself has reserved for his people. So he, put, he sees there in the earlier, chapter, earlier verses of chapter 1, this trinity. Every person in the trinity is at work by God's sovereign grace to win sinners to himself. And then here in this prayer, he just he prays that we would know too. That we would further know all the great and sovereign grace that God is giving to us as every person in the Trinity works for our salvation. This three of one. Posture of praise leads to, therefore, a posture of prayer. But if you think about it, if God is sovereign, let's just say if he is sovereign, he sits over the storehouse of his spiritual blessings, and he's also sovereign in dispensing them, what else is there to do than to come before him, falling at his feet, praying that more spiritual blessings would come from heaven. That's the only posture possible. 
before a sovereign God whose intention, according to the earlier verses of chapter 1, is to bless. And he takes pleasure in blessing. The prayer, prayer is the only thing left to do, to call upon this sovereign God, asking God to give us more spiritual blessings here. Prayer, if you're looking for a simple definition, can be defined as personal communion with God. You can also think corporately too, a corporate communion with God. And it takes the form of things like praising. So oftentimes, you know, in our services, we have a prayer of praise. Uh, we also have prayers of confession, where we are confessing our sin and asking God to forgive us. But these prayers, according to God's divine will, the Father, he asks us, look, I want you to ask of me for things. So in the Lord's Prayer, we ask the Lord to provide for us. Give us our daily bread. And there I do believe that it's talking not only physical, but also spiritual blessings too. And so we are asking of God to do something. Your kingdom would come here on earth as we prayed in the pastoral prayer. And here Paul asks things from this sovereign God. The very act of praying affirms God's sovereignty. If we believe that God has done all things in his sovereign grace, then the only logical conclusion, the only logical position we can take before him is one of prayer. Falling at his feet and falling at his feet to ask. These things go hand in hand with the sovereign God that we worship. That's the logic here in Ephesians chapter 1. Paul says, because this particular sovereign God stands over the heavenly storehouses of blessing, poised in pleasure to give and bless. Then he says, well, let's go and ask him. Let's go and ask him. That's what verse 15 says. It says, for this reason... Because of God's sovereignty, because of the grace that he pours out upon sinners, he says, let's go and ask of him more. Thank God for friends like Paul, right? We can all use friends like that here in this church, can't we? Friends who see our real needs and know where to get them filled. That's what Paul, that's how Paul functions there for these particular Christians. You know, sometimes we ourselves, we don't even know our real need, right? Our minds oftentimes are clouded. We don't know what to pray for. Sometimes we're probably praying for the wrong things, in fact. Sometimes we don't even want to pray. But what Paul does for his friends, he takes them by the hand. He takes us by the hand and leads us to the presence of God underneath the sovereign God who stands over the storehouse of blessing. You know, for us as a church, God has given each of us to, he's given each one of us to one another to lead us all to the sovereign God whose intention and, and pleasure is to bless. So then the question naturally is, do we do this? Do we function like this? Or are we fine to look at our friends and look at our brothers and sisters who stand away, maybe, maybe facing away from the direction of the storehouse of blessing from God, and we're happy to let them stay there. We know without doubt that they are struggling. They're not seeing things clearly. We know that they're not praying. And we just say to them, I feel like sometimes, in our own sin and selfishness, we say, oh, whatever. They, they could just remain outside of the silo of blessing. But here, God calls us to bring our brothers and sisters in Christ, here in this church, by the hand, Back to God, the sovereign God. You know, sometimes we even 
even in our sinfulness and immaturity and lack of wisdom, even lead people away from the sovereign God. Let's say we know that um, this has happened to me, unfortunately. Uh, there have been people who have struggled with any number of various things. And in their struggle, they might bring something up that I, frankly, might not necessarily know how to deal with. And I might change the subject. They bring something up that is sort of like above and beyond whatever wisdom I have in my own self. And I say, okay, here's the solution. Let's go see a movie. Someone could be desperately in need. And this has happened to me too. Friends, when I have been in desperate need, I'm sharing to them my heart and my discouragements. And they just kind of say, all right, time to think about something else. Let's talk about sports. Isn't that leading people away from God's silo of blessing? When we ought to be bringing them into it through prayer. Wouldn't it be awesome if this community, this particular church, you guys sitting here in the pews, could be part of a church that leads others by the hand to the true source of blessing. Friends, God has given us each other and has called us to go hand in hand before him and behalf of others. To draw from his infinite resources of grace in reliance upon His infinite grace through prayer. God has given us each other to remind one another to draw from His infinite resources in reliance upon His infinite grace through prayer. Paul is actually, he's he's getting ready to pray for grace in the present, that is in the now, through Jesus Christ. And you know how he does that? And he's prepping us to do this too, mind you. He wants us to pray for God's sovereign grace now. You know, you can think of all the the people that we prayed for earlier in the uh, pastoral prayer. He wants us to pray for them and and pray for God's grace now. But notice the way he does it. Right? He wants us to have confidence as we pray to him, as we go to him hand in hand, bringing our brothers and sisters before him. Look at verse 16 and notice who Paul prays to. He prays to the God of our our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. Right? There's two different names for God. God of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then number two, the Father of glory. Right? These aren't mere descriptions, but descriptions pointing us towards particular truths to anchor our prayers, to give us confidence that God is exactly who he says he is. So he here is reminding us that his infinite resources are matched by his infinite grace. And that we ought to draw from them through prayer. So he says they're God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, what he's doing here is he's, he's making us stand right in the middle of this train track of grace. And he's pointing us backwards. He's saying, look at all that grace. He is the God of that God. The God of that Lord, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Who in, uh, through whom we have forgiveness. We have redemption. We have new life. And in chapter 1 earlier, he says that God had chosen us to have this salvation in Jesus Christ. So this grace is hatched. This plan is hatched. You know, it comes out of this eternity of grace. And he says there, at that point in time, back there, that train track, that peace, that's where the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. And so, therefore, your soul is awakened to grace. But then he says, he calls him the father of glory or or the glorious father. 
And this, this is a unique reference pointing us to God, to what God will do through Jesus Christ, which is further explained in the passage. Everything is to the praise of his glorious grace, and he receives the praise through Christ. So what he's going to talk about is this future grace. He sets us on this train track of grace. He says, I want you to look at that grace, that, that train track that comes out of this eternity of grace, and that goes into this eternity of grace. And you, friends, are standing right there, praying to the same Father who laid out this track. He knows exactly what he's doing, and he says, I want to give you more of it, if you would indeed pray. And then Paul moves forward. He prays that God indeed would fill their need based on past grace, looking towards future grace. Now give them grace, Father. That's what he does. That's point number one. Growing is what Paul prays for, right? This is a prayer. That's our emphasis here. And then point number two, it's what should we pray for? Verses 17 to 19. I mean, ultimately, it's growing in grace through deeper knowledge of God's grace. Growing in grace through a deeper knowledge of God's grace. So here the emphasis is deeper knowledge. Let's see where the prayer ends up here. You can scan there. It ultimately it ends up there that God would give you a spirit of wisdom and a revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know his knowledge. But they already know, right? Because they already have every single spiritual blessing. That's what it says in the earlier verses. They have it all. They possess it. But then he prays, I want you to know more. You know, today it's fashionable to speak of striving for self-consciousness, a greater enlightenment. I mean, Paul even uses that word, enlightened. Uh, you might have some of our more spiritual friends living next door to you, neighbors, and they might make it their aim to reach some sort of self-awareness, some sort of greater self-consciousness that enables them to transcend their current existence. And with that self-consciousness that they come to find within themselves, they then go on to live in a way that they feel like they ought to live or they feel like they want to live. And they say, look, this knowledge comes from within. You find this within. That's how you reach this new state of self-awareness, self-consciousness. But this is very different than the Bible's concept of knowing or seeking knowledge or seeking enlightenment. These are the reasons how it is different. Uh, this isn't just a self-awareness, but a self-awareness that reflects a God-awareness. He prays that we would have a self-awareness that reflects a sovereign God awareness. According to the Bible, we ought to desperately seek a self-awareness. That is really good. And in fact, Paul helps us with that. He says there earlier that we do indeed have forgiveness of sins, redemption, which means we actually need it. He goes on there in, verse, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, as I mentioned earlier, and says that we are dead in our sin. We indeed are children of wrath even. So Paul is not against the self-awareness. He is much for a self-awareness. But a self-awareness that is that is indeed informed by a knowledge of God. It's informed by a knowledge of God. And the Bible is very clear that the Christian does not exist for himself or herself. But we are created for God. So if you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a believer, God made you to be in relationship with him. To be under his sovereign rule as he alone is the only king. 
And this was supposed to be a perfect relationship. In great love, you read there in Genesis that God showered his blessings, just as God always does, upon his people. Everything they ever needed. Fellowship with God. Fellowship with man. But yet, we sinned against him. He created us. We said, I don't really care. So we see that this sinfulness is not how we are designed to live. We are not designed to live for ourselves apart from this great king, but we're designed to live underneath the care and the love and, and the protection of this great king. So we can't have a God awareness unless we know God. I mean, that is what Paul prays for, isn't it? In verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. This is a knowledge of him. So if you want to seek some sort of enlightenment, it begins with looking at yourself, but with an awareness of this sovereign God awareness. And so he prays for a deeper knowledge of God. Then, of course, this, you know, the, the enlightenment program of the world looks for answers within. The Christian is supposed to look for answers outside of himself. Actually, they're supposed to look for, for knowledge from God. This wisdom is wrought by Christ's spirit. There's the spirit, part of the Trinity, at work for your salvation, where God himself convicts sinners and brings them to repentance and reveals more of himself so we would know him better. So this knowledge, right, it comes from God himself. Right, keep in mind, right, God is sovereign and this knowledge of God comes from God. And so Paul, before the sovereign God says, give us more knowledge, God. You know, if you are a believer and you can prof you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, you know that the only reason why you are able to do that is because that is a spirit-enabled confession. So turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Just flip over a few books to the left. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And it's really important for us to understand where this knowledge comes from because... If we think that this knowledge comes from ourselves, then what do we need a sovereign God for? Seriously. Why do we need a sovereign God if we already have it all in here? But if we realize where this sovereign knowledge God, where this knowledge actually comes from, that is a sovereign God, then actually we have a whole lot of rejoicing to do. Then we have a whole lot of praying to do. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 3 says, Therefore I want you to understand that no one, that is no one speaking in the spirit of God, that is the spirit of Christ as well, as that's Christ's, that's the Spirit's name, the Spirit of Christ, ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord, except, except, it says, except in the Holy Spirit. That is the sovereign God giving his Spirit who therefore enlightens our minds. You can turn on to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Let's go over there. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. And he says something very similar. It says there, the natural person, that is the person who doesn't believe in Jesus, the person who doesn't have the spirit, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God. Well, the question is why? Why is it that we don't accept the things of the spirit of God if we don't believe? It says, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So there they do not accept the things of the Spirit of God, 
nor are they able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. This is a spirit-given knowledge here. And by that, he doesn't mean that non-Christians aren't able to comprehend that Jesus Christ died on the cross for supposed sin and that Christians claim that he got up from the dead. No, non-Christians recognize, if you read this book, that that's what Christians claim. He's talking about a belief, a faith, an understanding in such a way that moves the heart to embrace God and worship him. That's what the understanding is that he's talking about there. So you see this spiritual knowledge of ourselves and this knowledge of the sovereign God. Those are two aspects of biblical wisdom. Knowledge of self, knowledge of God. Paraphrase John Calvin who wrote about these two aspects of biblical wisdom. I paraphrase it. It's knowledge of ourselves as the sovereign God sees us. And knowledge of the sovereign God and seeing how much we need him. It's knowledge of ourselves as the sovereign God sees us and knowledge of the sovereign God and seeing how much we need him. That's the posture that leads to biblical prayer before a sovereign God, calling down by God's grace through Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit for more spiritual blessings. The next point. Well, what is it then specifically that Paul prays for us to know? What what are the specifics of this knowing here? Um, off the bat, it's important to say that this deeper knowledge is of what has already been revealed. All these things have already been revealed that he brings up here. Again, the world's religions may say that we are to seek unrevealed and undisclosed knowledge. And people, therefore, need to find a way to tap into it, but not Christianity. The knowledge and conviction that Paul prays Christians would have is a deeper knowledge of what's already been revealed. All those things have already been revealed. Thus, Paul just prays for it very naturally through the book of Ephesians. If you're a non-Christian and you want to know what it is to know Jesus, right there in chapter 1, you have all the facts laid out for it in terms of a factual understanding. And here Paul prays for those who have already embraced it by the Spirit that they would continue to grow in this knowledge by the Holy Spirit. Verses 3 to 14, what are these truths? There are no secrets here. These have plainly been laid out. Jesus Christ walked on the earth. He died on the cross for sins. He was raised on the third day. And we have this whole Bible that is God's self-disclosure here for us to read, to grasp, for the Spirit to work in. Specifically there in verses 18 to 19, this here is the deeper knowledge that Paul prays uh, God to give his readers. These are all things that he's either spoken about or going to speak about. Look there in verses 18 and 19. It is that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Right? Again, he's praying through the things that he already mentioned in 3 to 14, basically. So if you're taking notes here, the three graces that God calls us to grow into, the hope of salvation, the glorious inheritance, the greatness of his power. So again, you've you got to keep in mind here, God is over his sovereign storehouse of blessing. He's sovereign over them. And here it's like he's bringing us back into these gold mines. Saying, look, opening the door, I want you to r- run and swim through all that. You, 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 you run and swim through all of this, investigating every crevice where every treasure is stored. And then you come over to this other one. And he flings open the door for the glorious inheritance and go, look, swim in that one. 
And then he goes over here to the next one and he opens the door to the greatness of his power, work toward the saints. And he says, I want you to know and swim in that. All of that's for you guys. These three storehouses of spiritual blessing. I want you to know it. Go into it. Don't just stand there and look and count, but go into it, he says. First, there is the hope to which God has called us. That is the, that's the first mind. We as Christians are, a, are to be a hopeful people. And it doesn't always mean that hopelessness never touches us. I think if you're honest with your own heart, you know that hopelessness can indeed trust you. But our lives are characterized on the whole as one of hope. Even when tragedy strikes, so when people lose their loved ones, one can still hope in Christ's resurrection power. Right? That, that's a real legitimate hope. That's a hope right now that's anchoring Adrian. Christians are a hopeful people. The most immediate hope though, is the hope to be saved from our sins, right? That is what Paul speaks about in chapter 2 as he sets up this great grand sovereign work of grace. He speaks about our sinfulness, what we're saved from, obtaining a right relationship with the sovereign king. We can go on in terms of what the Christian's hope is. You can think of full and free forgiveness, so never again ought we to think that we can work for our salvation, that we can make things right with God. We got resurrection life. We got this adoption into God's family where God is the perfect father, always caring, always dumping out spiritual blessings on his people. We got this great inheritance. We could just go on and on about all of the hope that we can indeed have because of his sovereign grace. But Christians, hope is not the only thing that Paul draws our minds to. He draws our mind to God's calling you to this hope. It's not something you stumbled across, right? This is something you were called to. He goes out to the ends of the earth and sends out his messengers and says, I want you guys to bring people, specifically bring them in so that they might know the storehouses of blessings. And it works in such a way where it is effectual. His calling goes out, right? You've got to ask, well, why do some and why do some believe and some not believe? It is effectual to some. Some hear the gospel and they are drawn, they are called to this great salvation in Jesus Christ. So we can think about uh, Romans 8.30. In this golden chain of salvation, uh, here God's call is given after he predestines. It says that those whom God predestined, he called. So predestination exists way back in eternity grace in the past. The call exists in the future. At some point in time, God called you. And then those whom he calls, he also justifies in Christ. And those whom he justifies, he also glorifies. I mean, how is that for grace if we just stop and think about it a little bit? We'll think about it more next uh, in two weeks from now. Uh, but Christians believe that we all had strapped ourselves with re- weapons of war against this God. But yet God himself reaches out to you, the hostile one. And in his grace and in his kindness, he reconciles himself to you i mean without doubt we did call upon god for salvation without doubt we are the ones who hoped in god but this is in response to god's call as god gives us his spirit according to ezekiel then our hearts are softened towards him you hear his voice and you know it at that moment this is god and there indeed is salvation in christ 
Oh, I remember this um, time that me and Melly were evangelizing this gal, sweet gal, in Washington, D.C. Uh, she went there to do some sort of work for the National Institute of Health. And um, she had visited a church. I think a friend had invited her or something like that. And she filled out on this visitor card, I'm interested in the gospel. You know why she did that? She did that in order to learn about the Bible, in order to disprove the Bible. That's what her intention was. And she readily admitted this. Sharp gal was headed definitely towards this uh, met, uh, MD, PhD program. Very intelligent girl. That's what her intention was in signing up for to meet with somebody to uh, read and study the Bible. So me and Melanie, we, we would re- meet up with her, study the Gospel of Mark, so the claims of Jesus Christ according to Scripture itself. Um, and in the course of uh, just going through it, you know, she had all these questions. Um, and then one day, probably after like four or five weeks of meeting up, she just, you know, I was standing next to this bookstall uh, next to one of the exits, and I was facing this bookstall. She just sort of tapped me on the shoulder. She just goes, Jeremy. I said, yeah, hi. And she goes, you know what? I believe. <laughs> and I was surprised, kind of taken aback. Because, you know, previously she had been hostile. We knew that she was there really to learn in order to disprove. And then all of a sudden, one Sunday, she just turns up out of nowhere. And was like, I actually believe this stuff. And you got to wonder, like, how exactly does that happen? How do we go from being hostile towards God openly, openly being against it, set against it? These are all myths and fairy tales of the stuff that she believed, to all of a sudden thinking, oh my goodness, there is a God and I am accountable to him. That's the sovereign operation of God and his spirit, opening our eyes to believe the gospel truths so that in this case, she would be saved. She's gone on, been a missionary, has plans again to go back onto the field. It's a wonderful story about this calling that God had given her, all by His sovereign grace. That's a storehouse of blessing, number one, that He wants us all to swim in, this calling of hope that we have in God. The next one, we can move over to the second one. We have this inheritance. This is the other, another gold mine waiting for us to explore, God's glorious inheritance in the saints. You know the way I think this phrase is supposed to work? I think it's supposed to evoke humility. Knowing that God in His grace took us as sinners to be His treasured possession. I don't, we're not supposed to think like, wow, gosh, you know, I am actually quite attractive. I am part of God's glorious inheritance. Uh, That's not the way it's supposed to work. We're supposed to look as if we were in the position from before we were saved... And then at that point, looking and recognizing that there is this glorious inheritance in his church. He's making his glory known in these particular people. As his treasured possession is, as it says in the Old Testament. And then we're supposed to think, oh my goodness, given I am dead in my trespasses and sins in which I once walked. As I was following in the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We're supposed to think, oh my goodness, all by God's sovereign grace, he has made me part of that group. I didn't even deserve it. I did not deserve it. There's nothing I could do to work for it. I'm dead. I can't go anywhere apart from the sovereign operation of this good and gracious and perfect God whose pleasure it is to bless. You know, Ephesians is a, uh, the Ephesian Christians is a largely non-Jewish church. We're going to get to this in future chapters. This is a largely non-Jewish church. 
So they're supposed to look over there and think, wow, God's people are now defined by all those who would ever have faith in God, in Jesus Christ. And he takes those people to be their treasured possession. Again, we're going to think about this more and more a little bit later as, as far as I know, we are all non-Jews here brought into his treasured possession. So we have the hope of God's calling. We have this glorious inheritance. But the mind of grace that Paul wants us to explore is the greatness of his power. That's the mind that he wants us to explore in greater detail. I mean, he spends so many more verses on this particular thing. It's interesting. Even in Paul's words, it seems like he's doubly concerned to know that we grow in our knowledge of it. Right? It's not just the greatness of his power. He doesn't want to stop there. It's not just greatness. It's immeasurable greatness of his power that he worked. Immeasurable greatness. This is like saying the gargantuan hugeness. Now, typically, we think of God's power, let's say, in creation, right? Man, for God to speak and things to be in, come into existence, for God to fling the, the planets and galaxies into their place, as the psalm says, right? We think, wow, man, that's power. But here, our minds are directed to the resurrection power. To the resurrection power. And there is a progression in Paul's mind that he wants us to follow as he kind of takes us on this tour of this particular gold mine of grace. Verse 20 says that God worked there. He raised Jesus from the dead. He says there that he seated Jesus at his right hand, which is a term for authority. Now we're going to go on in chapter 2 and see that Christians too are raised uh, and seated with Christ in the heavenly places, but no one ever receives worship like Jesus does. So here there's two different levels. Here, this is a term for divine authority reserved specifically for Jesus, his son, the God-man. So he raised Jesus from the dead. He seated Jesus at his right hand. And then God, God's work results in putting all things, everything underneath Christ's feet. And then making Christ sovereign as head over all things and specifically the church. So let's back up a little bit and see what exactly Paul wants us to see. Right? If, if we're just looking and examining this great power, okay, so he raised, raised somebody up from the dead, you know, what's the big deal? If we're not standing on that track of grace, if we're just looking at the facts, okay, you know, what's the big deal? He raised somebody from the dead, uh, he seated him at his right hand, and now he's sovereign over all. I think if you're just looking at it, forgetting about the grace that you stand on, the grace that has already come to you, the grace that's already promised you, it can be a bit like watching a bodybuilding contest. Okay, now I know for some of you, that might thrill you. I once wanted to be a professional bodybuilder. Uh, and, you know, maybe that thrills some of you. But, but for those of, I think the vast majority of you, that might not thrill you. And so you might stand there, right, and these guys have gargantuan hugeness, right? They got it down many through steroids and other things. And they can flex in a million different types of poses. Right? You see gargantuan hugeness. You, you know that they got it down. But frankly, who really cares? Who really cares? Unless you need those muscles to work for you. If you are the one who is under a huge weight, a spiritual weight of sin, of guilt, of shame, of hopelessness, then those spiritual muscles mean something, right? 
All of a sudden, it's a game changer if you realize what exactly you were in your sin for God to actually have gargantuan hugeness of power. That's the way that Paul intends us to read this. We know where exactly we've come from in our sin. We've fallen underneath this great weight of sin and then the effects of it. And we are underneath this weight of judgment. But God, with his immeasurable power, makes it disappear, this guilt, this sin like that. Because of all of this stuff that he's worked for us in Christ. It's a game changer, isn't it? Once you realize that this sovereignty, this sovereign power of great might is working for you to deliver you. That's what God's display of immeasurable greatness is in the resurrection to Christians. Look at there, verse 19. This immeasurable greatness, right, of his power, it is to us who believe. To us who believe. So God doesn't only display his power in the resurrection, but he wields his immeasurable power for the salvation and security of sinners who repent and believe. In the resurrection, God works his infinite power for us. The resurrection was a testament to the fact that our debt has been wiped clean, that Jesus Christ died on the cross bearing the wrath that we deserve, and then when he was raised from the dead, that's a testimony to the world to Satan, to evil, that it is finished. Romans 4.25 says Christ was raised for our justification. 1 Corinthians 15 says Christ's resurrection is the guarantee that we ourselves would put on immortality. That our own bodies would be raised from the dead. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is a promise that because of Christ's resurrection and his return, the dead in Christ will be raised. And that we will meet Christ in the air to usher him back to his kingly realm. In the resurrection, Christ's resurrected life becomes our resurrection life. How is that for grace, right? Turn over to Romans chapter 8, verse 11. Romans chapter 8, verse 11. And this is where we're supposed to be amazed here. Right, that his that the sovereign power that he wields isn't just to show off, but we're supposed to know that it works for us and then be encouraged in this sovereign grace. It says there, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So you get that, right? That this immeasurable power that has worked in Jesus as Jesus Christ rises from the dead. He says, that spirit is in you, Christian. And one day, that spirit too will bring life to your body. And death will put on immortality. How's that for hope? Storehouse of hope. That as we already saw, people are trusting in today and that you too can trust in today. But there is one result of God's working of power that Paul draws our mind to. The fact that we as former rebels now have that beloved king as our king. That's the specific result of God's working of power that Paul draws our mind to. You know, so what? Who cares? Well, it's God's sovereignty working for his people 
the church. If we are against the sovereign, right, that's bad. If, if uh, all that power is against us, that's not good. But since we are saved by the sovereign, preserved and protected by the sovereign, then it's really good. And so there's this great sense of assurance and confidence that we can have before this very God. And this confidence, I think, is drawn out in verses 20 to 23. The ideas of Christ's sovereign rule for the church are everywhere in 20 to 23. God seated Christ in the heavenly places where he assumes the position of great and special honor. The fact that uh, this is where he is seated speaks of authority over man and even over the spiritual realm. And Paul gets into this there in 21, where he has taken his throne to rule. It is far above all rule, all authority, all power, and all dominion. You know, those are basically all stratospheres of the angelic powers that he's talking about and the stratospheres of evil. So you think of this world is clouded and shrouded in darkness. We all follow the power of the prince of the air. And then in this world too, and above it, if there isn't above it, you have these stratospheres of evil. God says that Christ is seated way above those things. So much higher above these things. Not only that though, it says there that, that uh, he is not, not only above them all, but his name is greater than all other names to be named. And the language even talks about how God himself is the one who names them. He's the one who's sovereignly over them, or at least it hints of this. And it says that Christ's name is superior to them all. Whether in this age or in the age to come, everything, in everything, he is sovereign. And he is supreme over all. But what's amazing is that there in those verses, in verse 23, Christ, who is sovereign over all, has been given as sovereign of the church, which is his body. So there you see the sovereign one who is over all is your sovereign and his power, which will go on and judge, finally judge all those who stand against him, is working for you. Don Carson says he is ideally placed to ensure that all of his sovereignty is exercised for his people's good. Thus Christ, though he fills the entire universe, fills the church in a unique way. That's what it means there in verse 23 as the NIV translates it. Christ is head over the church, which is his own body. The, uh, the church of him who fills everything, every way. Though he fills everything in every way, he fills the church in a unique way. As he fights for and protects his people. Let's conclude with about 5-10 minutes of application here. These are the mines, these are the storehouses that Paul invites believers to explore. And he prays that we all would grow in our knowledge of it. Now we can spend more time applying and encouraging ourselves to know more of God's power. Uh, but this is going to come up in, in passages, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 6, uh, basically all the rest of Ephesians. Um, so we're going to get to the explanation and camping out on the, the storehouse of God's power. Uh, but I think it's important to camp out a little bit more on the desire to know. So that's what Paul prays that, that uh, God would give us, right? He would give us this knowledge. You know, na a nasty habit that I see amongst Christians is our temptation to cruise. We understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. Perhaps we're able to talk about these amazing things, but we only skim on the surface of it, or at least we're satisfied with skimming on the surface of it. And, and doing so, actually, there are symptoms 
that we should watch out for. So these are the symptoms that we all should watch out for. And if you have them, you may be skimming on the surface of the gospel. The first one, uh, a symptom is this, and we can hear it even in the language that we use. I don't really care to read the Bible. I don't really care to read the Bible. Now, whether you say it, you know, that could be present there, but you could also feel it. This is marked by an apathy to God and his word, right? You really don't care to read it. So that should give us a marker, okay? We might be skimming on the surface of the gospel. Another one, uh, there's only so much you can learn from it. So this says, you know, we've already achieved it. So therefore, what do I need to read more of it for? And this might lead to some sort of anti-intellectualism. You know, no, you don't need to study it. Oh, we can leave for that a little bit later. Why are you reading so many uh, sermons? Or why are you so into the church here to go to Bible studies and things like that? Or even read other works about Christian scripture, right? We've already achieved it. There's only so much you can learn from it. Another one that you can watch out for, another symptom is, I don't really talk about I don't really talk about it presently. Or another one is, if you talk about it, do you find yourself talking about the things you learned years ago? I mean, are you cruising off of your own spirituality that existed in 2005? Or are you continuing to grow in your knowledge of Jesus Christ and the gospel? Just think about you Biola students, right? How easy is it to... Uh, kind of cruise off the fumes of another person's worship. Maybe your own professor's worship. Right? The devotional thoughts of others. You take them. Maybe you even fool yourself into thinking that you too own them. You know, we better believe that where a heart has fallen into these things, accepted these things, being overrun by these things, to the point that uh, you were kind of cruising... You know, we better believe that there's no way that you're going to be praying for other people to grow in their own knowledge, right? If you yourself are not growing, why in the world would you pray for others that they too would grow? Or if you don't see your need to grow, why would you pray for uh, other people to grow? There's a solution to these things. A wonderful thing is that there are remedies to the situation, and, you know, the best way to remedy the situation is to confess and to pray. It's to confess and to pray. And I do not mean going through the motions of prayer. I mean approaching a sovereign God who sits on his throne over the storehouse of blessing in full recognition of who you are as you wrestle with sin, as you are apathetic, proud, lazy, if you've got a wandering heart, if you are neglectful, if you are undetermined, if you are discouraged, if you are inattentive, if you are sinful, and you just say, before the sovereign God, Help me. Help me. Would you help me, God? I know that you have every spiritual blessing at your disposal. I know that you have given me already Christ. Would you give me the strength of Christ? Would you give me a warm heart to your spirit? Would you search my heart and then rebuke me? Would you lift me up, Lord, because I am discouraged? Would you remind me of your sovereign grace in salvation, would you remind me that you love me as a child of yours? Would you remind me of all of the energy, the immeasurable power that you want to pour out upon us as we are discouraged? Do you approach God, your sovereign God, in prayer? Or do you perhaps approach Him like He might be 
an ant, unable to do for you anything. Approach God, your sovereign God, in prayer. Another one, tell others. If you've got a hard heart, go ahead and tell other people. If you find yourself not desiring to read God's word, you ought to tell other people. And why is that? If you are standing away from the sovereign God and the silo of blessing, you want to say, hey, brother, look, I'm struggling here. I'm facing in this direction. Would you please help me? Take me by the hand via prayer and via encouragement and pointing us to the word of God and saying, help me. Lead me back into the storehouse of God's spiritual blessing where I know that there is grace upon grace upon grace. Who is there to help you? If you don't have anybody there to help you, you need to go and find somebody to whom you can confide, someone you trust, someone that you know loves you and say, look, this is my heart, and then let them know what you're thinking. Lastly, you can make this particular prayer your prayer, whether you're praying for yourself or whether you're praying for other people. Wouldn't that be awesome if we today, I mean, we're going to pass out membership directories in the, in the or uh, I should say a church directory, because not necessarily a membership directory, a church, di- a church directory to everyone who wants one. How awesome would it be for us to try and pray through a page a day, praying these types of prayers for one another, right? I might not necessarily know exactly what Tyler is going through. But I know enough of what God wants me to pray for and what God wants to do in his life that I can just simply take this prayer and pray that the Lord would help Tyler know, help my wife know, help other people know what is the hope to which God has called you. Because right now that person lacks a little bit of hope. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Because right now he might really be doubting in the resurrection power. He might really be thinking that those who have died in Christ are really dead and gone forever, never to be attended to by Christ's spirit. There, we could do this, we could go on and on and on, but friends, just take this prayer and then make it your own. If you know somebody needs prayer, even if you don't, even if you don't know the people who are sitting next to you, go ahead and make this prayer for them. And that will be a very encouraging thing to do. Then you can go ahead and tell other people about how you've been praying for them from the Bible. So you see here that here we're supposed to approach a sovereign God, calling down his sovereign spiritual blessings. Because he alone is the sovereign one. So what other position, posture can we take before him other than to praise and then also go to him in prayer? Friends, do not settle. Do not settle. The storehouse of spiritual blessing, all of the wealth, the gold mines that God has prepared for you, why in the world would we stand outside of them just sort of glancing and looking in when we could actually go into them to experience them, to examine them, God is a sovereign God who has bound you for them. He desires that you know them. He desires that you swim in them and that you would grow in his amazing grace. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that you are a sovereign God. And we thank you that you work so so powerfully in Jesus. And we thank you, Lord, that you have worked so powerfully in the Spirit. How awesome is it that every person of the Trinity is working for our salvation. 
Lord, we pray that we would have this divine knowledge of ourselves and divine knowledge of you so that we might truly worship you and glorify you with all of our lives. Father, we pray that you would give us a spirit of humility, that we would, in recognition of who you are, go to your throne of grace, fall down at your feet and call upon you, that you would indeed be with us in our time of trouble, that you would make your presence known to us, that we would know this greatness of working, this immeasurable power that you have worked in Christ. So, Lord Jesus, you will work on us. Give us assurance. Give us confidence as we live out this Christian life. And, Lord, make us a church where we can indeed go to you hand in hand, bringing the requests of our brothers and sisters before you. Make us those kind of people as we follow that kind of Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.